My guest is Stanley Pignan, the Brussels Bureau Chief of The Economist and writes the weekly column on Europe called Charlemagne. Welcome to the podcast, Stanley. Thanks for having me. Right. Well, you were here 10 years ago working for the Financial Times and you recently come back to write this Charlemagne column. Can I start by asking you, Stanley, what have been some of the main changes uh, that you've seen after your absence of 10 years? Well, Brussels is, since I've left, Brussels has gone through a whole series of crises. When I left, it was really quite a miserable place. I left uh, just a few months before the whatever it takes of Mario Draghi. So Europe was in this protracted uh, Eurozone crisis, as you remember, and it wasn't clear how, how it would come out of it. And then since then, uh, from afar, I've seen a whole bunch of other crises. There was the migration crisis of 2015, then Brexit, then covid than uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, so you'd have thought that Brussels would be even more miserable. But actually, I, I've come back to what I think is a much more confident city, uh, confident institutions that I think have handled each crisis a little bit better uh, than the last. So the, the Eurozone crisis was miserable for Brussels in part because it felt like it had created the problem and then had failed to fix it. Um, whereas if you look at COVID or the war in Ukraine, at least those problems weren't weren't caused by the EU, and they at least have played some part in fixing them. So it's been, in, in a sense, a happier city, though, though clearly one where the mood is very much impacted by COVID and now by the war in Ukraine. Okay, so how does this, this confidence come across? How does it manifest itself? Just better policymaking, I think. Uh, more a feeling that at least the Commission and the Council, I mean, we can speak about the Parliament later uh but 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 a sense that europe has something to contribute uh, to these crises if you uh look at the war in ukraine actually in, in the beginning europe looked like it was nowhere uh, whether it's the eu or any of the the national capitals um you know europe was kind of the, the place where uh the us and russia would negotiate uh, as a venue and, and and was barely a player uh now as as time has gone by you know we've seen remarkable european unity on things like sanctions uh, there's actually a lot of respect given by uh, by the American American officials uh, on, on how effective Europe has been in developing sanctions and getting them adopted, and I think if you told me you know in February that that Europe would still be united by coming up to the end of the year uh, and would have passed you know eight potentially nine sanctions packages, uh, nobody would have believed you. So so in that sense, it's been it's been a pleasant surprise of unity. Now. It could still derail, uh, obviously. Perhaps now we are at a high point of European unity and we'll see more trouble with people like Maloney and people like Orban. Um, but I must say, it, does, it doesn't instinctively feel like it for the moment. And to what you ascribe this success, this efficiency, this focus, is it because the member states uh, have more leadership now, people like President Macron more in the driving seat, or do you think it's the European Commission led by Ursula van der Leyen giving clear direction to the member states? Where does it come from? Yeah, I think I, th I think it, it it's actually I think those are the two most important factors. Firstly, uh, Macron is is very keen on finding European solutions, and until recently, we had that traditional uh, Franco-German dynamic where you know France proposed a whole lot of things like eurozone budgets and so on, and then Germany would you know pick the ones that it might live with uh, and that that would push the the machine forward now that that actually is a dynamic that has broken down uh, of late probably temporarily these things tend to to iron themselves out um i also think the commission is is just a bit more of an efficient beast than when i left uh 10 years ago back then it was it was still barroso and it, it, the 
Commission and, and generally the EU institutions had had a pretty poor Eurozone crisis. There'd been a lot of navel gazing around the Lisbon, the Lisbon Treaty. So a lot of way too much European talk was taken up by, you know, who should be making decisions in the EU. Um, whereas now it, it, it feels much more streamlined. You know, the, the, I, I know that the Council and the Commission presidents don't, don't, don't seem to be getting on if I'm if I'm reading the, the papers correctly, uh, but actually decisions are, are being taken um, and there's a real sense of unity, as I said, that, that I'm, I'm surprised is, is still there nine, ten months after the start of the war. And this more efficient European Commission, I mean, some might put it down to the, should we call it the management style of the president, Ursula von der Leyen, and she has a critics, as you know, as well as I do, some, mm-hmm. she alienates uh, many people, starting with her colleagues around the, the Commission college table. Uh, but is that a, is that the price worth you have to pay in order to get things done in order to get this level of efficiency? Yeah, I, I wonder about that. I mean, the, the commission is meant to be a collegiate body. Um, and this time around, I, I, you, you see a bit more dissent uh, than you have uh, in the past. So on the specifically on the rule of law dossier, you've had uh, commissioners, including quite senior commissioners, uh, publicly saying that they disagree with a uh, with a commission decision. Uh, you know, on, on the big picture, uh, and really the focus is very much on Ukraine. Uh, I, I think the the commission has benefited from from pretty tight leadership. Now, it causes griping in the commission. It certainly causes griping uh, amongst members of the media. Uh, but ultimately, uh, stuff is getting done, uh, and the commission seems to have the confidence of uh, the big member states. Certainly Ursula von der Leyen does. Uh, so as long as that continues, I think that's good news for the for the influence of Brussels in the overall ecosystem. Does this mean, therefore, that when, when Ursula von der Leyen said at the beginning of her mandate uh, back in 2019 that, that she was going to lead a, a geopolitical commission, that was not just a hubris, that she meant something or has turned out to mean something, to be more precise? I don't know. I was never very keen on this idea of a political commission, uh, which has been upgraded since to a geopolitical uh, commission. I, I struggle to understand a little bit what it means. I think actually part of the reason that the commission has been effective is because it, it has returned to its kind of slightly technocratic um, consensus building role, um, which is not particularly uh, political. Uh, this isn't the this isn't the commission of Spitzenkandidat where you have a, a you know a, a political view of the commission. It's the commission that just organizes stuff. Uh, in this case, that member states can agree with. So it's, it's closer to a sort of secretariat. A little bit the role that some people I think think maybe the European Council should be playing, um, but it listens to member states. Uh, the, the commission is famous now for doing these confessionals before agreeing sanctions where groups of member states come in and detail their preferences and their red lines uh, and then comes up with compromises. That's the bit it's done extremely well. I don't really see that as being political. I see that as being interpretive of the geopolitical impetus provided still by member states. Right. It, it seems to be no secret, certainly here in Brussels, that Ursula von der Leyen would like a, a second five-year term when her current mandate expires in two years' time. Do you think this is all part of a, a cunning plan on her part to make sure that she gets the respect of key players around the European Council table who will, who will then kind of nod through her reappointment or not? 
I mean, I think in any case, having the respect of the key players is, is a good strategy for a commission president, whatever your ambitions are. I, I This kind of brings me to a little bit of a concern that I have, uh, that Europe is going to, again, start looking at institutional questions, and specifically the question of how the commission president is appointed, and this question of Spitzenkandidat and the role of the European Parliament, mm. uh, and that you are going to have conversations that kind of interest some people in the Brussels bubble and a few think tankers, but but really kind of nobody much beyond it. I suspect there are uh, some uh, national leaders, uh, maybe most national leaders, who'd rather not have those conversations and just reappoint Ursula von der Leyen for, for another five years. Uh, but they're going to have to navigate this this question of whether there will be a Spitzen candidate, or even, for that matter, whether uh, Ursula von der Leyen will be Germany's nominee uh, for a, a second term as commissioner, let alone uh, president uh, of the commission. My my sense is the longer we don't answer those questions, the longer we don't delve on those questions, the better. Uh, but Brussels being Brussels um, and a lot of people having megaphones, I suspect that it's going to start coming up kind of towards the, the beginning of 2023. You touched on this perceived, should we call it, like a rapport between Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, which again seems to be no secret. Is this, at the end of the day, just Brussels froth, though? How important is it in the great scheme of things that the two individuals do not seem to have a particularly warm working relationship? I think it is Brussels froth. Uh, I really struggle to see how this impacts anybody beyond kind of the bubble. It's not good news. It doesn't it doesn't help. It makes Europe seem a little bit parochial, you know, navel gazing, which is which is something that the Brussels I think has to avoid at all costs. My sense is, you know, these things shouldn't be allowed to get out of hand. And usually when they, when they start uh, making the papers is when these politicians who are all kind of fairly seasoned operators actually kind of sit down and get together and make sure that it doesn't, that it doesn't compromise their ability to get stuff. And as I've said, you know, the council and the commission have overall managed to work Quite well, there's been grousing. You know, the 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 council grouses that the commission doesn't get stuff ready on time. The commission grouses that the council president doesn't doesn't um, you know get the the right compromises around the table. But so far, actually, everybody gets bailed out by the fact that stuff is getting done and is getting done relatively well. And you touch on also uh, relations with with the media as uh, so van der Leyen's management style has an impact on how she deals and her entourage deal with the media. Explain maybe to our listeners what, what the experience that means in practice on a day-to-day -day basis, and maybe how that compares with your experience when you were in town 10 years ago with obviously a different commission president. Yeah, so I've come back in a slightly different role in which I now really do look across Europe and Brussels is, is one bit of what I look at. So I, I, I'm, a little, I'm a little bit less involved with the commission that I used to be. Full nice. disclosure, I don't spend a lot of time at, at its midday briefings. Um, but, but, but my sense is that the, the big changes I think happened uh, in the years, in the Juncker years, uh, when the the communications function was kind of rearranged uh, by by Martin Selmayr, who who knew the the mm. spokespeople service quite well, having having served in it uh, when I was last in Brussels, uh, as it happens. But the the the, the communications is quite tight. It's uh, it's what about a bit... what about access? 
I think it's it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, journalists always grouse and they don't get access. Clearly, some journalists are getting access. Um, the, the big difference, I mean, really, if you're speaking about the media, the big difference since I was here uh, 10 years ago is is Politico, right? Uh, and the uh, Politico born, I should say, uh, I should disclose, born uh, in, in many ways out of European voice, which used to be owned by by The Economist. Um, but, you know, Politico has has turbocharged the kind of the bubble vision, uh, as I call it. Um, and and it has meant that that um, it it's possible for people in Brussels to see their name in print, if you see what I mean. Right. Uh, rarely in print these days, but it, it's possible for them to feel like they're reverberating, even if they're just talking to within the bubble. That didn't used to be so possible before. Actually, if you were a European Commissioner ten years ago and you uh, wanted to get your name in print, it would usually be through a national newspaper or something like right. the FT, and that actually involves convincing an editor who wasn't based in Brussels that this person was saying something interesting right and now that has changed now with with the the the, the turbo growth of politico which i think is, is doing a, a great job by the way i mean politico is doing what politico is meant to be doing um but it means that that a, a commissioner can kind of talk to an audience of experts as opposed to try to appeal to an audience of of people who don't necessarily follow the eu closely so they have a higher level of visibility and notoriety they wouldn't have had in the past yeah but but that notoriety kind of stops within the bubble right uh and and you don't get uh i think it's possible to have the illusion that you're being listened to and that you're being written about because the bubble the bubble media is writing about you and and in fact it you know nobody outside of brussels kind of knows or cares what's what's going on Okay. We're going to turn in a minute to the external challenges facing the EU as a whole. But before we do, let's talk briefly about internal challenges. And you did touch on the the very uh, contentious, controversial rule of law dossier. How do you you see things panning out? Uh, Obviously, the the most awkward member state at the moment is by far Hungary, but there are a few people uh, maybe trying to claim that position as well as time goes by. How do you see that those developments panning out? I think the Commission has extraordinary new powers to bring uh, errant member states uh, t- to its will, uh, and that largely came because of of NGEU, uh, which gave a huge amount of discretion to the Commission. As NG- to, uh, sorry, explain. Next Generation EU. Yes, sorry, I, I forget. Yeah, I'm speaking to a neophyte. I'm speaking to a guy who uh, barely knows what's going on in Brussels. Uh, no, the the Next Generation EU, the post-pandemic uh, stimulus funds, 750 right. billion euros, give or take. Um, and but but part of it was you will only get it if you agree to do certain reforms for most countries that that basically meant economic reforms so labor market reforms in in places like spain or greece uh but for hungary and poland there was a, a kind of rule of law component baked into it and and that's the that's the power that the commission has and i think that's really worth noting i mean this used to be the commission basically used to have to deal out uh, the money that was in the eu budget and now it has this power it didn't used to have before uh to basically say you know if, if hungary and poland aren't doing what we think they should be doing, then they won't get the money. And in fact, Ar- Ursula von der Leyen at a speech in the United States kind of hinted, uh, she was speaking at Princeton University, I think, hinted that, you know, if Italy under Giorgio Maloney 
wasn't playing nicely, then Europe now had tools uh, to to bring them into line, and that that was taken very very badly indeed by uh, by the Italians. So I think those disputes kind of have legs. I think they will continue. Not only that, but I think right now we're talking a lot about Hungary and a little bit about a little bit about Poland. But I think next year we're going to have these debates about many more other countries that have potentially fallen back, not on rule of law, but have fallen back on the economic reforms that they promised as part of the NGEU program. And so we're going to start seeing the commission saying, you know, hey, country X, you said you were going to reform your labor market. You haven't reformed your labor market. Therefore, you're not getting this money. And that that is going to be contentious. It used to be, I mean, in, in a sense, these, uh, these disputes are familiar because Europe has had this thing called the European semester uh, for, for a decade now where countries that, that whose deficits are too high or debt levels are too high get castigated by the commission. But those reports basically used to be like think tank reports. The commission yeah. would, would kind of publish them uh, and would do press conferences about them. And, and essentially, they'd be completely ignored. I mean, there were no sanctions attached to them. Now, they're more than think tank reports because if the commission doesn't like what you're doing. You're not getting money. And these are serious amounts of money. And part of the reason why this fight is resonating at the moment is Hungary really, really needs that money. Uh, and therefore, it is willing to at least pretend it is doing reforms. Now, is it actually doing reforms? Uh, is it pretending to do reforms? You're going to have people on, on both sides of that argument. Um, but at least it's taking the commission very, very seriously indeed. Well, let me press you, press you a bit more on that point, Stan. It's one thing to have the leverage of withholding funds, but... Uh... But apart from as you hinting that people like Orban will pay lip service to potential reforms, if they're not actually uh, modifying their behaviour in the direction the Commission is stipulating, then this this leverage that the Commission has is only sort of half half there, right? It's not totally effective if people don't change their behaviour. They don't get the money, but they don't. They also choose not to change either. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think they need the money, so I think I think they they will. They, they, they will have little choice but to to change their behaviour. Maybe. By not very much, maybe only by just enough to get the money. Uh, but that pitch to get the money is going to be uh, is going to be is going to be there. Also worth pointing out, you know, the commission really wants to pay that money out. Right? right. The commission sees NGEU as you know a blueprint for how Europe can help in future crises. Now. A lot of people will disagree with that. The Dutch and the Danes and so on will say, you know, this is a one-off. We never want to see another scheme like this again. But fundamentally, this is a, uh, you know, there's pan-European borrowing um, that is being used uh, to help uh, countries in need. This is kind of the birth of a European budget. In order for it to be the birth of a European budget, it needs to go to all 27 countries. It can't just go to, to 25 yeah. countries. So the commission's incentive is, is very, very much uh, to, to pay the money out. But it is also conscious of the fact that there are a lot of people, especially in Northern Europe, but probably beyond, who don't want money going to people like Orban, uh, who think that you know this is corrupt, or they don't want money going to places like Poland, uh, where there are also quite quite significant rule of law uh, challenges, um, and therefore the Commission is in a it, you know it has a delicate balancing act to play but what i've what i'm seeing now that i really didn't see 10 years ago is the amount of discretion the commission has i mean these are decisions that the commission can make more or less on its own account i think there is a control from from the council and maybe from parliament but by and large the commission is making the, these decisions so it matters much more than than what i was used to 10 years ago Okay, well, let's turn our focus a bit externally. We could talk about Russia, maybe we can. We can talk about China, maybe we can. But I'd like to start with talking about the United States, actually, where mm. the Economist has a big chunk of its of its readership. 
One would think that uh, there's a new era of EU-US cooperation, uh, transatlantic bonhomie after the four years of Trump at the White House. But as you know, as well as I do, there's, there seems to be trouble brewing, right? The Inflation Reduction Act that Biden announced as part of this major stimulus package is c- causing some anxiety on the European side, to say the least. How do you see that that panning out? As we know, there, there are many structures in place, like the Trade Technology Council and other dialogues in place, which have been there for a while. Some are more recent, like the TTC. But uh, against that backdrop, we have the reality, right, of... Uh, uh, a major cause of concern in, 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 I think, all European capitals and the European Commission, that what the, uh, the US is trying to achieve uh, creates problems for them, for Europe. Yeah, 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 absolutely huge problems. I mean, it's still, these still feel like more manageable problems than we had under Trump, right? Trump was a much bigger problem uh, for Europe uh, than I think Biden was, uh, but people were expecting relatively smooth sailing with Biden. Uh, and I think maybe uh, were surprised that actually some of the Trump tariffs weren't weren't repealed. They were very mm. partly um, repealed, uh, and that Biden has a has a protectionist uh, he has a protectionist bent. And you know he has uh, domestic constituencies that he has to satisfy uh, amongst the unions, among business leaders, business leaders, uh, and so on. And he's had a very uh, very narrow political. Uh, he, he's had quite little political a maneuvering room and so what he has managed to come up with this is is this inflation reduction act which fundamentally does something europe wants which is it does something about the environment and it, it, it truly does do something about the environment and america's carbon emissions but it does so by undermining europe's access to american markets um and that that is a, a huge concern and it it, it you know, Europe, though it has its protectionist tendencies as well, um, really has done quite a job trying to keep the free trade system alive, the WTO system alive, multilateralism uh, alive. And I think it it feels like it's been a bit kicked in the teeth by what is meant to be an ally at a difficult time, in particular since, uh, you know, we are uh, we are now facing the, the rise of um I think what we now call a strategic rival mm-hmm. uh, in in China, uh, and that the U.S. and Europe are on the same side, uh, and mm-hmm. so it's been a yeah, it's been it's certainly been a frustration in Europe to feel like you know their concerns are certainly not being being listened to in any meaningful way. Right. Maybe then the final question, uh, Stanley, towards the end of this chat, um, and please don't groan. But EU-UK relations, I'm, many people. Uh. Uh, yeah. uh. An audible groan came across. Uh, I think most people are pretty uh, tired and frustrated by the whole Brexit debate, post-Brexit relations debate, if you like. Mm. But do you see any signs of uh, uh, for optimism going forward between that the EU UK are finally working out, apart from this small matter of the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, yeah. how to work more effectively, more in a more constructive, more constructive manner in it going forward? I mean, two months ago, it felt it felt poisonous, but two months, I guess, is is three prime ministers ago in in, in Britain. <laughs> you definitely sensed uh, a change in mood uh, when Liz Truss came in. Uh, her going to this European political community. Uh, there was Macron's baby, the big meeting in uh, in Turkey. Um, in Prague, I think in Prague, in Prague. In Prague. In Prague. Sorry. Yes, I said yep. sorry with Turkey, but in Prague. Yep. Um, I think uh, I think indicated uh, that a reset. Uh, was possible, uh, and and Sunak kind of seems to be on the same line. We've had that that we've had that deal with migrants, uh, which has removed a bit of a headache for the Brits. So there's definitely a sense that uh, Britain and France can work together. You know, one of the irritants was this 
uh, AUKUS deal that the Brits had done that had undermined the French sales of submarines to, to Australia. That now looks like it's in, in the rearview mirror. But as you say, we still have the matter. We have two things that are outstanding. The first is the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, which is a kind of live issue in which we would need about six hours to unpack <laughs> uh, in, in a podcast with, with lots of charts and diagrams. And, and the second one is, you know, wh- what is going to be the end relationship between Britain and the EU? And I, I still don't see any visibility there. There was talk days ago on the Swiss thing. Yeah. And everybody kind of shot that down quickly. The Europeans, I think, don't want it. The Brits don't want it. So it really depends on, on you know, the, I think this depends on London. Uh, more than more than Brussels, I think London needs to propose something that Brussels would then, uh, and national capitals would would accept or not accept. And I don't really know kind of how much you know where where the political leaves are in the UK in terms of being able to offer a, a new relationship. But I'm more hopeful than I was two months ago. But still, fundamentally, I think this is going to drag on for for quite some time. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there, Stanley. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Real pleasure. Good to chat.